and seals in the book of Revelation. Don't worry if you don't know what that means. I'm going to catch you up to speed here. Uh, but we are in chapter 6. We're going to look at chapter 6. The, all of chapter 6 is seven or six of the seven seals. We skip a chapter, chapter 7, and then you go to chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, and you have the seventh of the seven seals. Now, if you're, if you're like 99.99% of folks, you're thinking, I'm not sure what we're talking about, and that's okay. That's why we're doing this series. We want to give handles to be able to pick up this book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. It's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. The word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypse, and apocalypse means unveiling. And so you're seeing the unveiling of Jesus, and you're seeing the unveiling of what Jesus is going to do. So hopefully that de-shrouds a little bit of the mystery behind this book. We're seeing what is to come. And we're seeing this from the lens of seven first century churches. And so let me just give you a quick little overview, and then we're going to jump in to these seven seals. So the first, again, if I'm just giving you handles, and whether you've been here, this is your third week, or whether this is your first, uh, it doesn't matter. We're going to give you handles to be able to pick this book up. So the first week, we looked at the first three chapters. That gives the overview of what this book is about. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ to John. Now, we're not sure exactly which John this is. I think it's probably John who wrote the book of John, then 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. John, the beloved disciple. He would have been the youngest of all the disciples, and I think this book was written late, late in his life. Uh, and so that's my, my take on it. But there are other folks that would debate and say it's a different John. We'll know one day. Uh, and so... This, uh, this book is written by him. It's a revelation where he is taken into heaven and he's shown a vision of what's going to come. And so we're going to see a lot of symbols. Some of them we're going to say, we know exactly what this means. Some of those we're going to say, we have an idea of what those mean. And some of those we're going to say, um, we're going to take our best scholarly guess, but we're always going to look back in the Bible to understand this book. This book has all old information couched in a new way. What I mean is, you see quote after quote after quote from Old Testament passages. So when John saw this vision, he sees a bunch of Old Testament images, and he's very familiar with what's happening because he's a Jewish guy. He went to Hebrew school. He knows the scriptures much better than you and I know the scriptures, so it's not a big, huge mystery to him. He's like, oh, all the pieces of the Bible are coming together now. Then after we see what this book is about, we see a letter to seven churches, and that is chapters two and three. After these letters to seven churches, uh, by the way, the common thread to all of these churches is they're told to do one thing. Every church is told to be a conqueror. Now, we can't see this book differently than they would have seen this book. Otherwise, we're taking it and we're changing it. However, we can see this book the way they saw it, plus 2,000 years of history that's elapsed between now and then. And we can say, oh, we see what they saw, and we see an even more full picture of what they saw. One thing we can take to the bank is that the Lord is calling us, if we are followers of Christ, to also be conquerors. Now, you only have to conquer if things are tough. It's just like courage. You only need courage if there's an opportunity to be fearful. Now, 
We will all have an opportunity, if we are in Christ, to be a conqueror, meaning we will all come up against obstacles. And these seven churches had seven different obstacles. Then you get to chapters 4 and 5, and John sees a different revelation, a different vision, and he sees the throne room of God. He sees Jesus. He sees God the Father. He sees the Holy Spirit. He sees these four living creatures. They're going to play a part Throughout the book, you're going to see, he sees 24 elders around the throne. He continues to see thing after thing. And the way we described it, other people have described it this way. It's like John's in a room and he turns and he looks out this window and he sees something. And then he says, and you have to pay attention to every word in this book because he says, he'll say things like, then I heard and he'll hear something. And then he'll say, and I turned and saw. And so we're seeing this revelation play out to where we're, we're, we're following John. You really have to lock in your imagination in this book to try to understand. It's a very visual book. You read and you're like, oh, he heard that. What's he going to see? And then you're going to turn and he's going to see and he's going to say, oh, this is the full picture of what I heard. And that's how the book's going to play out. So after the throne room of God, we see, we see some incredible things in the throne room of God. That's, uh, it just gets, it's bigger and bigger and bigger. And then eventually in the right hand of God, John sees a scroll. And that scroll has seven seals. And I know you know this, but let's go back to Greco-Roman days. If you had a seal or if you're like, that's not me. I'm more of like a medieval person. Fine, let's go there. They did the same thing. You would take a wax, a, a wax and a candle. Like okay, that's not what you would take. Not a wax. That's not it. You would take you would take a candle. You would melt it. It would drip onto the page if you, as you folded it over. And you would have a ring, and that ring you would put on there, and it would mark who put that seal on that piece of paper. And only the right person can open or break that seal from that king or queen or whoever it was that put that seal on there. So this seal, again, it's not new information. In the book of Daniel, Daniel saw a seal, uh, a scroll with seals on it, and the Lord told him he could not look at it. So John, in the Revelation, sees this scroll described very similarly to the one that Daniel saw and everybody's weeping, and John weeps because he says, who is worthy to open this scroll? Daniel's been wanting to see it. Everybody wanted to see it. All the little Hebrew boys in school were like, what was in the scroll? Like, go home and write a paper on what you think was in the scroll. Um, except paper was hard to come by then. And so anyway, like, they were, they were just, everybody's wondering what's in this scroll, and they cry out, who is worthy to open the scroll? And it's the lamb who is worthy to open the scroll. And the lamb is the lion of Judah. So you see all these pictures play out. And the revelation of Jesus at the beginning of the book is this king, powerful Jesus. But right then in chapter 5, we get a lamb who was slain but was alive. And the lamb goes and he gets the seal, the scroll with the seven seals. And we're going to see the lamb now break every one of these seals to be able to open the scroll and see what's in it. All right, are we caught up to speed? Let me pray for us and we'll get rolling. Father, as we watch the lamb open these seven seals, would you open our mind and our heart to you? Lord, would you help us to stay awake? Would you help us to stay engaged? Would you help us to hear a word from you? Lord, guide my words certainly, but Lord, let us hear a word from you. May your Holy Spirit move 
as we watch the lamb who is worthy open this scroll. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Revelation chapter six, verse one, I watched when the lamb, so he's watching, he's not listening. Remember, he's listening to a lot of things and he sees things. This one he is watching. He watched when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. So these are the four horsemen. The first four seals that open are the famous four horsemen. They've made movies. They've made folklore. They've made all kinds of appearances. We're going to see who they really are. So this first horse, this first horse that comes out with a rider is on a white horse. Now, when we get a few weeks from now, when we get to Revelation 19, and we will, Lord willing, we will get to Revelation 19, and it's going to be amazing. Uh, this, I remember, I described this as like, like a really large living room Bible study. That's kind of how I want us to tackle this. I want us to like think and engage and dig in and ask questions about this because if you don't ask questions and we don't wrestle with this, you'll be like, oh yeah, I did a Revelation Bible study one time and it just won't affect your life. This is to change the way we see the world. That's why this is the last book. And so this horse, this white horse comes out and he's given a crown. This is interesting. He doesn't possess a crown. He's given a crown. Now, in Revelation 19, we're going to see another person on a horse, a white horse. This rider, his name is Faithful and True in Revelation 19. We're going to see Jesus on a white horse in Revelation 19. This is a fake Jesus. The first seal that's popped open, a fake Jesus comes out. This is the Antichrist. And we're going to see him play out over the next few weeks. We're going to, so the book of Revelation starts at like 30,000 feet, and it's going to go to like street view really, really quick. And when it goes to street view, we're going to see the Antichrist play out and what he looks like. But this is the Antichrist coming out. But if you flip over or if you just want to make a note of this, in 1 John, John, again, none of this is new information. It's just explained information. And so John in 1 John chapter 2 says, children, this is in verse 18, it's the last hour as you have heard and the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. And so John, and he goes on, it's a great little passage you can read from chapter or verse 18 and chapter 2 of 1 John all the way to the end and you'll see a little bit of a working definition of an Antichrist. But John says there is an, an Antichrist, there's one, one main player and we're going to see him in this book but there's also many antichrists. And so the beginning of this is there's a bunch of antichrists that are in the world. Now an antichrist is gonna look like he comes from God. He's gonna seem like a savior. He's gonna be on a white horse. He's gonna be able to conquer things. And he's also gonna have a bow. He's gonna have power. This makes me nervous for you and for me. Because it is really tempting when you get your, tax, your taxes done and you realize you owe like six grand and you're like, what? 
If there was just a Republican in office, we probably wouldn't know six grand, probably only know like two, and I'd probably get money back. And, uh, and all of a sudden, I'm like, I need, a, I, need, I need somebody in office that can fix this. And if you're not careful, you will find someone who is in power, who looks like they might be a Christian, who looks like they might can save you, and you will put your hope in them, and that person might very well be an antichrist. And they will claim that they can fix your problems. They will claim they can save you. And yet they will deny Jesus. And there are many antichrists in the world, but there will be one who will be a great deceiver. But make no mistake, they will look like they have come from God himself. And they are the knight in shining armor, and they can save you. Now, these first four are pretty much all going to come together. And I think they started in the first century, and I think they're still rolling today. I think these first four um, kind of come together, these first four horsemen. I think the next three seals are sequential. And one of those seals in particular, maybe probably two, two we really haven't seen much of or any of, really. So let's keep going. The second seal, and I looked... Uh, when he opened the second seal, verse 3, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Again, the Lord is not trying to convince these horsemen to sin. They are more than willing to sin. He is just turning them loose. And if you think, well, how does that work? Think the book of Job. And if you think, I don't understand that either, come back in like a few months and we'll be in the book of Job this year and we'll take a real deep dive into this whole world. But what we see here is this other horse comes out and the Lord gives him a sword and he's able to take peace. You wonder how people like a Hitler or like ISIS or some of these other folks can come in and have such great power to do such great evil. There are the, the rider on the red horse. And then we go to the third seal, verse 5. He opens the third seal, and I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. Now let's pause right there. In modern day America and really in the Western world, when you think of black, you, you think of death. But in the Hebrew world, it wouldn't be the same. So let's see what this one is. Uh, he opened the third seal. I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. Not like serpent scales, but like the weighing scales, like like uh, Lady Justice has in her hand that she holds up. There's two scales. There's one in each, one on each side, and you're weighing out the good and the bad and, and the verdict. You're trying to get a verdict on which one wins on those scales. And so this writer comes out with scales, but scales are also used to measure food. And a lot of times they were, if you've, if you've been to a farmer's market recently um, and you went to like, like a real farmer's market, somebody had some scales there and they were like, you got two ounces. And you're like, that's awesome. Before Whole Foods had the little thing that like weighed all your food, you still had to like do the scales and you're like, I have one pound of bananas. And, uh, and so, you know, now it's like $10, but it wasn't then. Um, 
And so this, this guy comes out on the black horse and it has scales in one hand and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now this horseman is fascinating. This horseman again gets the authority for how much damage it can do from the creatures worshiping the Lord. And this living creature says, here's what you're going to do. This is all you're allowed to do. You mess with people's minds by making them starved in the things that matter. Don't let them be able to afford the flour and the wheat and the stuff to feed their kids and the things that are necessities in life. Don't let them be able to afford those, but give them oil and wine and make them think they're fine with the luxuries. This is the numbing horse. This horse rides all over America. We have very little of what we need and excessive amounts of things that don't matter. And the more we get of what doesn't matter, the better off we feel. This is the rider on the black horse. So we had three living creatures, three horses that come out, and the fourth is certainly the most famous of all of them. If you ever saw Tombstone, the movie, then you know about this horse. And so let's take a look at the fourth horse, starting in verse 7. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed with him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and the famine and with pestilence by wild beasts of the earth. This is the only rider that's given a name. This pale horse, which by the way, the word pale comes from the word chlorophyll that we get, like fills up plants, turns them green. This is like a pale green horse. So this pale green horse that comes riding out has a rider who gets a name. This rider's name is death. And this death is followed by hell. And it's able to, it's able to kill. And this, this rider is given four ways to kill. This rider can kill through pestilence. That's disease. This rider can kill through famine. This rider can kill through the sword. And this rider can kill through the beasts of the earth. So the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Now this is interesting because this one has multiple riders with him. And 25% of the population is opened to the wrath of this creature. Now you may be saying, why? Why in the world? So these four horsemen, and then there's gonna be three more seals that are broken and it's not gonna get better. I'll just go ahead and warn you about the ending. You're like, why? Let's go back in time. Let's go, let's just take it back just a little bit. Let's go back to when a guy named Moshe was walking around and he was out in the, the wilderness. Before he got to the wilderness with his million or so Israelites, do you remember what they were doing? 
He was standing before Pharaoh and he was saying, let my people go. And every time Pharaoh would say no, God would do what? He would send a plague. And every time God sent the plague, it was to show people, and it says this in the book of Exodus, it was to show people who is the Lord. The people wouldn't respond in any other way, so God shook them. And he didn't shake them once or twice or three or seven or eight or nine. He shook them ten times. And still, after every plague, it wasn't just Pharaoh. There were many people who hardened their hearts. They saw it was the hand of God. They knew who the most powerful was, but they hardened their hearts. But there were many others because it says when the Israelites left, they left with a multitude of other people. They left with a bunch of Egyptians because those people were awakened from their slumber and they realized there is a living God and the ones we have been worshiping are wrong. These seven seals are directly related to the 10 plagues on the Egyptians. These are not just God randomly saying, I'll send four horsemen and they'll do four types of terrible things to the people and the people will just get punished over and over and over again. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is the Lord waking us up from our slumber. And sometimes the only way we get woken up is when a big bucket of cold water is tossed on us. And so each one of these is the Lord waking and arousing his people. And that is language that is used over and over again in this book. And then there's a fifth seal. And I want to pause real quick again because I think these first four, again, are, are somewhat in order. And I think the next three are going to be more sequential. It's going to be one leading to another, leading to another. And yes, there's overlap. But these first four, I think we would all agree, Antichrist have been in the world since Jesus rose and, and went back, ascended into heaven. And John says that in 1 John. I think we would agree that the, the writer who takes away peace and creates war has been around. I think we would agree that the third creature... Uh, who has the scales and tries to trick people into thinking what they don't need is what they need and what they, what they really need is too expensive anyway. They can't have it, so just go with the substitutes. I think that one's been around. And certainly the death, the death rider has been around since then. So I think these four have been around, are going to be around, will continue to be around until Jesus puts an end to all of it, which we're actually going to see in the seventh seal. And then I think the fifth, sixth, and seventh seals are ones that are happening a little bit, but will happen more and more and more. So let's look at the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar. Now, this is the first time John has seen the altar. He's still in the throne room of God as he's seeing these visions, but this is the first time he's seen an altar. At least it's the first time he's written about it. And so again, you gotta use your imagination. So listen with me here, follow along with me. You gotta use your imagination. You're in the throne room and John is just turning from thing to thing to thing to thing. And then the fifth seal's open and he sees an altar standing there before the Lord and he's gonna see people under the altar. And that's a big deal because you only offer things to God that are worth being offered. And so 
these things under the altar have clearly been offered to God. Well, how do people get offered to God unless they were human sacrifices? And what do we call a human sacrifice for God? We call that a martyr. And so we're going to see under this altar these people who have been killed for their faith. There is no mixing words. They didn't just like live a good Christian life and die. These are people who were killed because they would not deny Jesus, their Savior, in front of men. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given a white robe and they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they, as they themselves had been. Now this, this one we could just camp out on for a long time and I'm gonna try not to camp out on it for too long but I just, I do wanna talk about this. Look, I think some of you have like a real Southern kind of faith. Like you were like, I go to church on Tuesday and I go to church on Sunday and like, I, you know, I could probably do like a little better with my quiet time. I just want you to be careful that, that you don't mistake that church behavior for truly being born again. These folks were radically born again. Like Jesus was their life. And when it came time to like boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, family, property, job, whatever else, when it came time for them to have to choose between their savior and the other things, they chose him. When it came time to choose between the word of God and compromise, they chose the word of God. And it cost them everything. These are not spectator Christians. These, I mean, these are the heroes. These are the real deal. They knew the lamb long before they met the lamb. And they were willing to give everything for the one who gave everything for them. And so they literally followed in his footsteps in a sacrificial death. They died for him so that others might see Jesus. And they said, how long before you make things right on the earth? And now they're under the altar and the Lord is close to the altar. He loves these people. Like he loves everyone, but he loves these people. And he puts a robe on all of them. And he says, just rest a little while longer and I'm gonna make it okay. And they say, how much longer? And he doesn't tell them how much longer, but he says, here's the reason. There's more of your brothers and sisters that have to die. And the reason there's more of your brothers and sisters that have to die is because the world is so cold and so dark and so broken. Unless they see people who will not deny me unto death, they may never believe. And those martyrs, who make the weightiest of sacrifice often have the greatest impact of anyone ever. It just makes me think of those Coptic Christians out on the beach a few years ago in those orange jumpsuits when their heads were cut off because they would not deny their Lord Jesus. 
And I don't have much more to add to that because that's hard for me to understand. And then, verse 12, he opens the sixth seal. And he looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. As the fig tree sheds its winter fruit, was shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place, and the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains calling to the mountains and the rocks fall on us hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand i think this sixth seal is what the old testament calls over and over again the day of the lord this is the great day of reckoning. It's the great tribulation. There is a tribulation that is happening in all of these seals, but I believe this marks the great tribulation. And again, I told you, just hang, hang on. We're going to see this book go from this 30,000-foot view that we have right now to a much more detailed view of what the day of the Lord looks like. He's gonna John's going to see, and the Lord's going to spell out what does this look like, but this is it. And you see the great tribulation. You see the Lord just raining down on on the earth, and you would think in that moment people would say, okay, I give up. Clearly he is God. And what do they say? Don't let us have to face him. Our hearts are so hard and our, our, our ways are so cold and callous to the Lord that even when the Lord shakes the foundations of the earth, we still don't respond. And that's why I want us to wake up. I want us to make sure that we've like shaken off the slumber. I know it's like 8 p.m. or 8.24 p.m. on a Tuesday night and you just had Good Friday and you had Easter and you had to go back to work and you saw your family and boy, they were great and tiring and all the things. And like you had, you had friends Easter giving or whatever it's called, like you had all your stuff. And then like, now you're like, you're like shaking it off and you're like, you're asking a lot of me. I'm asking a lot of you because this is like really, really serious. The Lord is going to shake the foundations of the earth one day. And now you may say, well, Thomas, is this literal? I don't know. If I was back, if we, let's say we all lived before, uh, right before Moses, like a hundred years before Moses. And we got a, we got a letter in the mail one day. Um, it's handwritten and uh, it's no email. And I read it before you and I was like, says here that in a hundred years, um, the water in the Nile is going to turn to blood. Uh, it says hundred years, um, the frogs are going to be like all over the place. It says here in a hundred years, there's going to be a big hailstorm and gnats and flies, and the earth is going to get dark for three days. Like, I think at that point, we would probably say, wonder what that means symbolically. <laughs> I think we would be like, let's, let's think about what is symbolically the water turns to blood. Well, clearly there will be a red tide and some of the fish will die. That's what that means. So I'm like, I know that there's some really smart commentators out there and really great Christians, thinkers that are out there that are like, we got to read all this symbolically. I'm just not totally convinced. I think in some way the sky will vanish. I think every mountain and island will be uprooted from its place. I think that rocks will be falling around. I think the, the sky will go dark, and I don't know how all that looks. It's happened before. Why can't it happen again? Let me just tell you, if you can get over Genesis 1-1, why can't you go through the rest of the book? If you can believe Jesus raises from the dead, what's the big deal about that? 
Don't fall victim to the people that tell you to read your Bible and then make up stuff because that's not really what it means. Do you trust the people or do you trust the book and the one who inspired it? Don't, don't be that person. Don't be too smart for your own good. Next thing you know, Jesus' resurrection will be metaphorical if you do that. And that's called Gnosticism. And it's condemned in the scriptures. So like, again, if you can get past Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and you can get past Jesus like raising from the dead, and apparently a lot of people did. Churches are very full on Easter. Like, if you can get past those two things, this is like very attainable. So let's not over-explain it, even though we might not fully get it. And so this great day of the Lord happens. We're going to skip chapter 7. We're going to go to chapter 8. And then the seventh seal is going to be opened. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. And the Lamb opened the seventh seal, and there was silence in the heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God. When you see seven angels, my friends, be on their team. Definitely be on their team. You don't want to be on the opposing squad. Seven angels is like not good if you're on the other side. It's the perfect number. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And then I saw seven angels who stand before God. And they have seven trumpets given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God. And the hand of the angel... And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And that, my friends, is it. There's no more tomorrow morning and a second chance for anybody. That is it. And we're going to see this play out over the next few weeks as we look through this book. And we're going to see how does the world end as it is and how does the Lord create a new heaven and an earth and what all happens in between. But this is like really important to get this snapshot of how it all goes down. The Lord shakes and he shakes and he shakes and he shakes and he tries to awaken and awaken and awaken and awaken. And let's be the people who are awakened. Let's be the folks who are not sleepers. Let's be the folks who see that it is an antichrist and not the Christ. Let's be the folks who say, we don't need the oil and the wine. We need the stuff that counts. Let's be the folks who are speaking truth and sharing truth and loving the one who gave truth. Let's be the ones who say, regardless of my job or my family or my friends or whatever, I will never deny the one who didn't deny me. Let's be those people. At the end of chapter six, they ask a question. The ones who are hiding from the Lord, they say, who can stand? It's the last three words of the chapter. Who can stand before this God who does all this stuff? And chapter 7 is the answer. And after this, I saw, I'm in chapter 7, I saw at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow the earth or the sea or any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who have been given power to harm the earth and the the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And he goes through and he lists all the tribes, 
but he does include Levi and he leaves out another tri tribe. And maybe tomorrow we're going to do like a, a sermon talk back on this. We'll probably hit on that, but for tonight I won't. And then he looks, he heard, and then verse 9, he looks and he looks and behold, there was a great multitude that no one could number every tribe and nation and tongue and people and language standing before the throne. Remember the guy said, the people hiding from God, they said, who can stand? And what does John see? He sees them standing before the throne. These, this is, I hope this is you and I hope this is me, right? Like we want to be the ones who can stand before the Lord, not the ones hiding from him because we're terrified of his wrath that's coming on us. And they're standing before the Lord. And they're clothed in white robes and they have palm branches in their hands and they're crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to the Lord our God and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne. They worshiped and they said, amen. This is Sukkot. If you were in church on Sunday, this is the feast Jason preached from in John chapter seven. This, this feast is happening in heaven. This is the feast of booths where we tabernacle with God because he tabernacled before us. They are waving the palm branches before the Lord stand and they're saying, they're, they're singing the Hallel. So they're doing the Lulav Hallel. Hallelujah, right before the Lord. They're standing before the Lord. They're singing the Psalms of Ascents. They're worshiping the Lord and they are not afraid of this lamb. And they are not afraid of the wrath of the one who sits on the throne. How is it that the people in, in chapter six and the first part of chapter eight are terrified of the lamb and the God who sits on the throne, but these people are standing before him and they're singing to him. How does this work out? Because we have two very distinct groups of people here. Some that can't get close enough and some that can't get far enough away. And what's the difference? And they're saying, verse 12, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. And then one of the elders addressed me and he said, who are these? This is a very Jewish thing. He's like, who are these? And you, ask, you don't ask this, you, like in America, you don't ask the student, what do you see? The student's like, hey, teacher, what is that? But in Hebrew, the teacher says, what do you see? And the student's like, I don't know, teacher, what do you see? And then the teacher answers. And so that's exactly what's happening in this next little bit. One of the elders turns to John and he says, who are these? Who are these clothed in the white robes? And from where have they come? And John, I said to him, sir, uh, you know, so aka, why don't you tell me? And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And then he's going to say how they can stand before God. And it's not because they're so good and so strong and so wonderful. It's because they washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and it made them white. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And therefore they're before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence, Psalm 91. They will hunger no more and neither thirst anymore. The sun won't strike them nor the, nor the scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I want to land the plane with this thought. Uh, we're, we're all, everyone in this room, everyone in the world is going to encounter God on the throne and the lamb who was slain but is alive. Everyone in the world. 
living, dead, and yet to be. Everyone in the world is gonna face the lamb and God on the throne. And everyone in the world is gonna have one of two responses. They will have the chapter seven response or the chapter six response. They will say, let me hide from this lamb. Or they will say, wisdom and honor and blessing and power and glory be to this lamb. And they will be judged by the wrath of God or they will be washed clean and made white by the blood of the Lamb. Everyone. And so which Lamb are you going to encounter? Which Lamb are your closest friends going to encounter? Which Lamb are your coworkers going to encounter? Which Lamb are the people that you spent Easter with going to encounter? That's the wake-up call to these passages because I get two options. I get the, the lamb of wrath in Revelation 6, 16 through 17 where I can't get far enough away from him or I get the lamb who leads me to living water and God who wipes my tears away from my eye. And it's not two different lambs. It's the lamb who is perfectly just and perfectly loving. And we all will face him. And I think as we go into this, this time of worship, I think it's worth me just reading a couple of verses out of, out of Matthew 24. Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25, and again, we're going to do like a little bit more sermon talk back tomorrow. We're going to dig into some of this that we couldn't get to tonight. But in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus basically describes what we just went over for the last 40 minutes or so in two chapters. And he says about the end times, he says, they're going to deliver some of you up to death and tribulation, and you're going to be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And he said, and many of you will fall away and you'll betray one another and you'll hate one another and many false prophets will arise and they'll lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And tonight, as we, as we end in worship, I want you to just ask the question, what's the, what's the thermostat reading on your love for the Lord? Because Jesus doesn't mix words, and he says, as times get tougher, the love of many who would call themselves my people is going to get colder and colder and colder. And I want us to be the people who burn with a white, hot love for the Lord because he bled with a white, hot love for us. And so will you stand with me as I pray and we get ready to worship as we think about that, Father, Lord, may you stoke the fire in our hearts because you loved us so much. Lord, give us a love for you. Give us a hunger for you. Lord, if we have fear about facing you, Lord, would you help us to resolve that before we leave here tonight and call out for the robes that we wear to be washed in your blood and made white because of what you did, not because of what anything we could do. 
Lord, would you stir us to a great affection for you? Lord, help us to be able to stand before you and to be conquerors. Lord, you conquered the grave so that we can live and be conquerors in your name. And help us to not fall prey to those antichrists that are out there, not be led astray, but to keep our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And it is in his name that I pray. Amen.